0: God made us to center our lives on a concept that is so completely fundamental to who we are, so paramount, so baseline to our lives that we really can't envision life without this concept. And someone who has no grounding in this concept lives a very hard, a very painful, a very horrible life. And that is the concept of home. Home is so important to us. Our home is where we feel comfortable it's where we belong. It's where our greatest relationship events happen. We even speak of having a church home. Because worshiping with other believers whom we get to know as brothers and sisters over many years, that, that makes us our spiritual home, our, our church home, so to speak. In terms of this world, it's not really our true home in its current state. In fact, the New Testament characterizes this world as For the Christian, as a traveler or a stranger in a sinful world, we're aliens even. Our truest home is a heavenly home. It's our Father's house. And eventually, when new heaven and new earth are essentially joined, that will be our real home. The Bible even speaks of going home to be with the Lord, because heaven will be even more like home than we feel here. But it's very clear that we're built by God to have a home. And for Israel, because of covenant unfaithfulness over many, many generations, the patience of God finally came to an end and His temporary discipline of His chosen people was something awful, something terrible. It was to take away their home. He took away the land that was precious to them, even the city of Jerusalem, that's the Bible's capital city. He even allowed the destruction of his own temple, the temple of God, their spiritual home was destroyed. But he wouldn't do this perpetually. In his faithfulness, God is going to return at least a remnant, a partial representation of Israel to their home. To Jerusalem, in fact. And what we're going to see is that God is going to produce obedience in those returning such that they desire to return home, even after having been away for a minimum of 50 years. Now, we've just really got some momentum going here in our series in Ezra Nehemiah that we're calling, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And every message is going to highlight one aspect or really one proof that God is faithful to His people. And the last time we looked at the proof that God keeps His Word, tonight I'd like to look at the proof that God produces obedience. God produces obedience. And so we find ourselves back in Ezra chapter 1. And we're going to turn back the clock, turn back the calendar now, about 2,500 years to the year 537 or 536, somewhere in there. The year before, in 538, uh, this is B.C., of course, before Christ, Cyrus, king of Persia, issued his decree to the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That's the famous decree of of the first few verses of Ezra. This decree was by the sovereign hand of God stirring the heart of Cyrus to issue this decree. This was all according to God's plan. Isaiah 45 explained this 150 years before the fact. And now the sweetness of the reality of returning home is upon all those who are going to return. And even on those staying behind who are going to help them, who are going to push them on their way. Now, I want to be clear about this. Yes, they are returning home, and there's a great desire to do this. But the Jews had been in Babylonia, now ruled by Persia, many of them for 70 years and a minimum of 50 years. If they were taken in 586 B.C., they had settled into a life there. Many of them were born there. And in fact, in Jeremiah 29, 5-7, God gives the exiles instructions as to what to do while they're in exile and his instructions might surprise you here's what god said to the exiles to do jeremiah 29:5, build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Did you catch that? The Jews were to pray for Babylon, to pray for whatever towns and outlying cities they were in. In other words, God told them, settle in, invest your lives there because you're going to be there for decades. And so now we find a bit of a paradox in that God would have to give them a desire to return back to Jerusalem. He would have to give them the desire to leave because they'd made their home in Babylonia, later controlled by Persia. And it became their home in many ways. And in fact, in Nehemiah, when we get to that book, we'll see that the scriptures have to be translated for a younger generation who don't understand Hebrew any longer. They they have in many ways lost their identity how can we understand this? How can it be both that, that they want to go home to Jerusalem and yet leaving their home will be difficult for them? I think we could understand it with something very close to home for us right now. I can't speak for all of you, but having spent a decade of my life worshiping God in this building. And while I'm very thankful for our new facility Our last Sunday here on June the 5th, Lord willing, I believe there will be a lot of tears shed and a lot of them will be by me. This has been our home together since before even I arrived. And since Grace Bible Church called me as your pastor, we have worshipped together in this room about a thousand times. And so, do we want to go to our new facility? Absolutely. Will there be tears shed here? Yes. And so there's that paradox And so because of that, God's going to have to cause, He's going to have to produce obedience in Israel to return. And why is this so important? It's important because God is faithful to His promises. What would have happened if He just said, well, it looks like you've settled in nicely. I mean, you've built houses, you did everything I asked you to do, you've started businesses, you have kids and grandkids here. I mean, your kids don't even speak the language anymore. They're they're settled in. Let's just leave it as is. That would be disastrous. Because then His redemptive plan for mankind and for Israel comes to a halt. And what does that mean for the character of God? It means God is not faithful. And so, though in their humanity most would likely want to stay put, and the vast majority of them did, God placed a desire in the hearts of a few to return to their true home. And so all around the theme of obedience... We're going to cover a bit of ground here in Ezra 1, beginning in verse 5, and go all the way through the end of chapter 2. And we're going to examine this theme, and to do so, we're going to look at it through four different lenses. Kind of work through some important parts of this passage four different times. The first lens around the theme of obedience we'll call The Story of Israel to Return in Obedience. The Story of Israel to Return in Obedience. This is the basic story. Now... Ezra 1, verse 5, all the way to the end of chapter 2, is one literary unit. It's one uh, focus together, and it's set up in a very simple fashion. You have the story's introduction, you have two lists, and then you have the story's conclusion. And so we'll just kind of walk through that. The story's introduction, two lists, and the story's conclusion. First, you have the story's introduction. Ezra 1, verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Now, very simply here in this introduction, verse 5 speaks of those that are going to rebuild the temple, And verse 6 speaks of those who were staying behind, all those who were about them. The highlighted people here in verse 5 are the heads of the clans of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The temple was in Jerusalem, which is in the province of Judah, which in Persian reckoning basically encompassed the tribal territory of only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That's why they're highlighted here. The servants in the temple, the facilitators of the worship of God, they were the priests, they were the Levites. And just to, just to review this, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The decree from Cyrus was specifically for the returnees to go to Jerusalem, not just to settle, but to rebuild the temple. And you recall from last time that Cyrus had this empire strategy of trying to please all the people's, that he was over, and all the so-called local gods, that of course, the one true living God was using that strategy for his own purposes. In verse 6, the author speaks of those staying behind. The emphasis is on the Jews who are staying behind, but as we saw last time, it's likely that this group also includes Gentiles. In verse 4, those staying behind provided silver, gold, supplies, beasts, as well as free will offerings, Um, just out of their own heart, as well as offerings to get the sacrificial system up and running again in Jerusalem. So you just get that little introduction to the story. Now, the heart of this section, the, the vast majority of it, the next part of the story of Israel's return in obedience is comprised of two lists, one fairly short and one really long. The first list is an inventory of the holy vessels to be returned to Jerusalem, the things used in the temple. Ezra 1, verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Midradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shef's bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is specifically what Cyrus ordered returned to the Jews. These were the temple vessels. These were the implements taken away from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., And so Cyrus has his treasurer, Mithridath, apportion these items to Shezbazar called the Prince of Judah. What does that mean? It means he would be the first governor of the province of Judah under Cyrus. So Shezbazar would be the governor. Now, Shezbazar is a Babylonian name. The text doesn't indicate whether he was a Jew with a Babylonian name or if he was uh, Persian or a Gentile of some other sort. In either case, he's the one leading the Jews out of Babylon to go to Jerusalem. He is the one taking charge. There is a school of thought that Sheshbazzar is the same as the more well-known Zerubbabel in verse 2 of chapter 2, but they are two different men and there's no need to try to make them into one. Now you might have noticed, if you're good at math... That if you add up all the vessels counted, it comes just shy of 2,500 pieces. But verse 11 sets the total at 5,400. It just means that there are other vessels not in the list. So there's no problem there whatsoever. It's not an addition problem. It's just that the, the specific vessels listed are more of a summary list. And so that's the short list. The inventory of holy vessels to be returned. Then you get the second list and it's much longer. This is the roster of all the people returning. This is a long list. It's a detailed list. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 confirms that all the exiled Jews returning are all from families taken from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar decades before. And it gives a list of the leaders of these in the first return under Shezbazar. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Reim, and Baena. So these are the 11 leaders, the most important of which is Zerubbabel. Now, he wasn't the governor appointed by Cyrus. Sheshbazzar is. But he was the leader recognized by the Jews. And eventually, Zerubb- Zerubbabel would become the official governor during the restart of the temple construction about 15 years from this point. And if you read the book of Haggai, that fills in some of those details. The second man on the list, Jeshua, he's the high priest for the Jews. And you will see Zerubbabel and Jeshua listed together. He's the high priest for the Jews returning to Jerusalem. And one more little note here, the Nehemiah listed here is not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah wasn't even born yet. This particular Nehemiah is a different man. And so God provided leadership. And then the lion's share of the people, the the longest part of this list, these are the followers, the laymen as it were. And they're listed in detail in the second half of verse 2 all the way through verse 35. This is a very organized list with specified families and how many from each family, really more of a clan. These are large families. In verses 3 through 20, they're listed by heads of families. That's how you know who's going. But then, interestingly, in verse 21, all the way to verse 35, there's more of an emphasis on geography, on where each family originally was, where they were from in Judah. These just a couple of examples. Verse 21 the sons of Bethlehem, 123. That's not a person named Bethlehem, that's the town of Bethlehem. Verse 28, some of the ones you're probably more familiar with, the men of Bethel and, and AI or I, 223. And how about verse 34, the sons of Jericho, 345. Now we'll come back in a bit to why this is so important, because it's very key. But not only does God provide leaders and laymen, God provides priests in verses 36 through 39, so that they might restart the worship system under the law of Moses. You have leaders, you have laymen, you have priests, and now you get to sort of a hodgepodge group, kind of all all the leftovers, I guess. In verses 40 through 42, you have the Levites, the non-priests, but those who will help in the temple. You have the temple singers, the sons of Asaph, in verse 41, and you have the sons of the gatekeepers, who were also Levites. All of this is encouraging the returnees that worship is going to be restored. That eventually, even when they rebuild the walls, they'll need the gatekeepers. And so, while it's kind of a hodgepodge in verses 40 through 42, there's an encouragement there that worship is coming back to the way it's supposed to be. This little hodgepodge group says God is going to do something. It's an act of faith that they're going. In verses 43 through 54, We get a long list of temple servants. They're not Levites. And get this, they're not even Jews. Why would there be Gentiles following Jews around as servants? Our best answer and the most likely solution is that these are Gibeonites. You remember the Gibeonites? During the conquest of Canaan many hundreds of years earlier, the Gibeonites were the people who tricked Joshua and Israel into sparing them by pretending that they were from a faraway land. They they acted like they were from far away, when in fact they were just kind of over the next ridge. And they tricked Israel into making a treaty with them. Joshua honored the treaty, and he said, we won't kill you, but you'll be our servants, you'll be our wood carriers pretty much forever. They're still doing it. In fact, they went to exile with them. And that's not a bad thing. It means that they were under the blessing of God as well. Then in verses 55 through 58, the author lists the sons of Solomon's servants. These are the descendants of specific servants placed into service at the time of Solomon. Now, as you read through this and the designation of these people, do you get what the emphasis is? Why are the people returning? They're returning to worship. The emphasis is on the temple. The emphasis is on God. The emphasis is on worship. And then, last and least, you have those who claim to be Jews, but they couldn't prove it by their genealogy. We see several hundred of them in verses 59 through 63. Those that claimed to be priests would be restricted from serving in the temple. They couldn't partake of the ceremonially holy food until a priest could consult God. But it's very likely that these who couldn't prove their genealogy, they were taking quite a hit in status by exposing themselves to this scrutiny. And this is very important because their desire to return to Jerusalem seemed to outweigh any pride that might have prevented them. They didn't care if they were at last and if they were least, as long as they got to go. And now the author summarizes this massive list with a little bit of new information. Chapter 2, verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Here's the new information. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. I'll come back to why that's important. And so we have a grand total from verse 64 plus 65 of about 50,000 people returning. Now that might seem like a lot, but when considering that this is supposed to be a restart of an entire nation, that's minuscule. That's not very many. But these are precisely the ones that God wanted to go. So we've seen the story's introduction. We've seen two lists, the temple articles and the roster of those returning. And now the story's conclusion. Between verses 67 and 68, this is the actual return. This is when they go. This, the group has made the trek of many hundreds of miles. Verse 68, some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. They're not, there's not, they're not coming to a temple. They're coming to where the temple used to be. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Verse 70, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So two important events are chronicled here. They begin with worship. They're making free will offerings. They're going to get temple construction underway. And the second important event, most everyone settled into their towns in Judah, in and around or more, more around Jerusalem. So that's the baseline, that's the first lens, that's the story of Israel to return in obedience. And it's an interesting story, but I'd like to dig farther into this. Because Ezra and Nehemiah is very much the story of God, above all. It's the story of God, and all throughout the book we see the theme of God's sovereignty. We've talked about that in every message, and I, I am certain it will come up almost every week. His total control over all events in this This theme is meant to be a faith builder for us. So the first lens, the story of Israel to return in obedience, I'd like to look now at some key passages at the second lens, which we'll call the sovereignty of God to cause obedience. The sovereignty of God to cause obedience. It's a very simple question. Is God the efficient and total cause of all things up to and including the obedience of his people? I got into a discussion with somebody once about the sovereignty of God. And he said, I believe that God is sovereign, just not over everything. (laughs) Just think that through for a while and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I want to show you four pieces of evidence from this text that God is sovereign. Four pieces of evidence. First and most obviously, we'll call the desire evidence. The desire evidence. Chapter 1, verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God is the same God who stirred the spirit of Cyrus to issue the proclamation to rebuild the temple. The last time we reminded ourselves of Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, you might say, well, how does that apply to people? This is what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser, that if God can take the greatest men on earth who answer to no one and turn their hearts exactly where He wants, then He can do the same and infinitely more so for all us regular people. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water, but in the previous chapter, just a few verses earlier in Proverbs 24.24, 24, there's a broader principle A man's steps, meaning anybody's steps, are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? What does that mean? It means that the pathway that God has chosen for you, you cannot possibly understand it all. You cannot possibly analyze it. It's under God's sovereignty. And you say, well, I've always done the things that that I want to do. I've never done something that I believe God wants me to do, but I don't want to do that thing. Really. Psalm 33.15 says that the Lord is the one who fashions your heart. Of course you wanted to. Why? Because God made you want to. Does that mean that you're a robot? Does that mean that you're somehow being dragged into something? No, it's a real actual desire that He's given you. And Isn't that nice? That God asks you to do things and He makes you want to do them? That's very convenient. That's very kind. And how did God bring about obedience to His plan? He placed a stirring of the heart. It means... The mind, the will, the emotions that all, every part of their being wanted to leave. And he placed this into the hearts of specifically 42,360 Jews, and, and we'll include there the temple servants, those that have now been kind of inculcated, probably Gibeonites. They would take their servants, they would take animals, they would start a new life. And again, remember, this desire is important. They're leaving established homes. They've built houses. They have a new life in Babylon from decades behind. The Lord stirred them to leave it all. And why would they do this? Because they're following a heart conviction given to them by God. And I imagine those conversations must have been amazing. You know, I've been, I just don't feel the satisfaction anymore. I really want to go back to Jerusalem. Really, that's interesting. So do I. And have that conversation 42,360 times. And then Cyrus Issues a decree. Anybody who wants to go back can. We were just talking about that. That's the desire evidence. The sovereignty of God is also shown by what we'll call the pattern evidence. The pattern evidence. In Scripture, God often orchestrates events to have an echo or a repeat or a foreshadowing of one another. In fact, there's an entire area of biblical hermeneutics called typology. That God provides a type or a pattern which points forward to a greater reality. In this case, the pattern evidence is demonstrated by the the tremendous similarity to the last time God took Israel out of an oppressing foreign nation to bring them to their own land, the Exodus. The very last phrase of chapter 1, verse 11, when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem... This is the same verb used multiple times to to his promises to God's promises to Moses that he would rescue his people from oppression in Egypt. Exodus 3 verse 8. God says, "I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up, same verb, out of that land to a to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey." Exodus 3.17 I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites flowing with milk and honey. Same verb, same pattern. Remember in chapter 1 verse 6 how those living around the returning Jews in and around Babylon gave the returnees silver and gold and supplies and animals and costly wares. And we mentioned last time that this was somewhat of a tax in all likelihood that emperors don't make suggestions, they give orders But you notice at the end of verse 6, there's one more category. Besides all that was freely offered, there's the required gifts, if if we can use that oxymoron, the required gifts, and those freely offered. Yes, Cyrus had commanded in chapter 1, verse 4, that the neighbors of the returning Jews send them away with provisions, but there was also a heart desire, a, a yearning to help. Other things that are freely offered. It's like this. Here's what I've been asked to give, but I want to give much more than that. We also mentioned that it seemed likely that there were not only the Jews staying back to help, but also Gentile neighbors. Now, why would we make that assertion? Why is that a pretty good case? Because it fits the pattern. And what's the pattern? We go back to the Exodus. What did God do for Israel nine centuries earlier, right before they were es- preparing to escape Egypt, probably just, just moments before almost. Exodus twelve thirty five through 36 The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. So what does this look like? Just wanted to let you know our people are leaving now. You won't have any more slaves. Wonder wondered if you would give us all of your stuff. What happened? And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, was that just to give Israel a start as a new nation? No. What was the wealth given by the Egyptians used for eventually? To build the tabernacle, the traveling worship center for God. And what would the wealth given to the returnees from Babylon use these donations for? To build the temple, the worship center of God. The fact that God uses very specific, identifiable patterns over vast centuries, what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates His undeniable control over all events. There's not only the desire evidence and the pattern evidence, but we would go also to the prophecy evidence. The prophecy evidence that proves the sovereignty of God. Now you remember this part of the preparation brought about by Cyrus. Chapter 1, verse 7 You have the Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Verse 11 indicates 5,400 pieces, a vast fortune. Why is this so unusual? How many times in history have you ever heard a conquering emperor say, okay, you can have all your stuff back? They don't do that. And yet God brought it about, but he didn't just bring it about he already said this is exactly what he was going to do. Jeremiah 27, verse 21, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem. This is before the invasion. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. That is a pretty specific, precise prophecy. You have the desire evidence, the pattern evidence, the prophecy evidence. How about this? For the sovereignty of God, the covenant evidence. The covenant evidence. God made a covenant with Abraham that the descendants of Abraham would occupy and own a very specific piece of land perpetually for all time, forever. When Israel came into Canaan, the promised land, during the, the conquest, Joshua 13-19 through 19 records the very specific allotments of specific parts of the territory and cities to individual tribes of Israel. It's, it's very, very uh, precise. Now, you remember here in Ezra 2, 21, and following, families are listed according to geography, according to what cities they came from, the same geographical locations they had inherited centuries before. Why is that geographic emphasis here? It shows that God has, in His covenant faithfulness, sovereignly returned these families to the exact pieces of land that they already owned by God's decree. Decades and decades after having been taken away from them. To deny the sovereignty of God is to deny the core essence of God. And to deny the core essence of God is to deny God. So when you deny sovereignty, that's a slippery slope toward creating a God who does not exist. To deny the sovereignty of God is paramount to idolatry. The sovereignty of God, you realize what that does for us? The sovereignty of God is the chief attribute that causes us to trust Him. That's what our faith is grounded in. We place our faith in Him. We rely on His wisdom. Even when our eyes tell us that we're in trouble, the sovereignty of God reigns over all. The first lens, the story of Israel to return in obedience. The second lens, the sovereignty of God to cause obedience. The third lens we'll look at, we'll call the supply of heaven to support obedience. The supply of heaven to support obedience. God never makes a plan without providing for that plan. Never. Did you notice throughout this passage the frequent mention of provision? God gives the provisions necessary for this task of jump-starting an entire nation, of rebuilding the temple, of getting uh, the people provided for. And we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 6, that those staying behind gave what was required of them. And some scholars, again, believe that the motivation of the non-Jews to give, why, why would they give? Well, the same motivation that Cyrus had That is to entreat the favor of various gods. And so it's likely that as Cyrus sent lots of different peoples back to their land to rebuild their particular temples, that he encouraged the neighbors, the Gentiles, even to give to those efforts as well. In this case, unknowingly, to the efforts of the one true living God. But we get another perspective on the supply of heaven, God's support of His people returning. In Egypt, many centuries earlier, God's people were very clearly slaves. They were hard-working workers enslaved by Pharaoh. But we don't want to picture the Israelites in Babylon now controlled by Persia this way. It was very different. They had built houses, they had established businesses, Some had risen in the ranks to very high positions. We think of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. We think of Nehemiah that we'll see in the next book, the attendant to the king himself. Esther, a Jewish woman who would become the queen of Persia in her marriage to Ahasuerus. And in fact, many of the Jews had become affluent. They had become wealthy in the past decades. Look again at chapter 2, verse 64. There are 42,360 Jews returning plus 7,337 non-Jewish servants. Verse 65. What does this mean? For every six Jews, they're bringing one servant. That's a big deal. And in verse 65... Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, they had 200 male and female singers. Now, wait a minute. We've already talked about the singers. Chapter 2, verse 41. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. In verse 41, the singers, the singers of Asaph, these are the temple singers. These are the, the lead worshipers. These are the music worshipers. If that's the case... Who are the 200 male and female singers brought along by the 42,360 Jews? There's only one other option. Traveling entertainment. That's it. It's like this. Hey, we're going to be on the road for months. We're going to get really bored in the evenings. We better bring some professional entertainers. God provided so abundantly for those returnees that they were not only bringing wealth donated to them by their neighbors, they're bringing their own personal wealth. And in verses 68, uh, 66 and 67, rather, he lists all these animals, massive wealth, but also servants, one for every six, and even professional entertainers. Can I put it this way? This is almost like going on a cruise ship. They're just bringing their own entertainment. Oh, I wonder who's on Tuesday night. Oh, look, it's the this trio. What a wonderful time they're having. They were wealthy. They had plenty. All this was to suit God's purposes in providing for the restart of the nation in their land and to fund the building of the temple. We've seen this in our own church, haven't we? Now, we don't have our own personal, professional singers here, but this is what we've seen once we since that the Lord was leading us to build a new facility, this church gave like at at epic proportions. And I've had so many of you say, I can't believe what's happening with my business. This has happened, and, and wonderful new things raises. And God provides for His work. He always does. If God has commanded us to proclaim the gospel, if God has commanded us as a church to be salt and light, then He's going to give provision for that work. He always does. The first lens, the story of Israel to return in obedience. The second lens, the sovereignty of God to cause obedience. The third lens, the supply of heaven to support obedience. And how I would love to just close in prayer. But you remember in our introductory message that Ezra Nehemiah is the story of Israel's return to their land and that return falls flat. It fails. That ultimately it will fail Because the elements of the true and yet future return haven't been put in place yet. The key element, of course, is the yet to come new covenant in which true believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and sin no longer reigns and rules them. But we do have a fourth lens that we'll call the seeds of unfaithfulness that undermine obedience. The seeds of unfaithfulness that undermine obedience. I've had the privilege of knowing quite a few church planting pastors, church revitalizing pastors who help revive failing churches. And it seems in my experience at least that almost 100% of the time there has to be a sifting that occurs with the original group. That a few remain faithful while many begin to show their true colors and get disgruntled for one reason or another. The top two reasons I've seen is that the first reason they get disgruntled is they weren't given all the power that they thought they were going to have. Or the core group didn't realize that the pastor was going to try to preach to them and sanctify them as well, not just everybody else. At the beginning, everyone is optimistic, everyone gets along great. That almost never remains the case. And in the same way, embedded in this story are the seeds of unfaithfulness. Hints and nuances that foretell of greater future failures since disobedience always starts small, doesn't it? The seeds. There's three seeds of unfaithfulness here. The first seed we'll call cultural accommodation. Cultural accommodation. Look again with me at chapter 2, verse 2. This is the list of the leadership of the Jews returning. And I want to point out four names to you. Zerubbabel, Mordecai, Bilshan, and Bigvi. Zerubbabel, Mordecai, and Bilshan, their parents gave them Babylonian names. Bigvi, his parents gave him a Persian name. And you might say, well, who cares? Maybe it was just a popular name. No. For the Jews... What you named your children was a means to pass along your history and your heritage. Uh, See also how many Jacobs are there in the Bible. This is some indicator that those families had been inculcated by their culture. That they settled in too much. Now, yes, the people were told by God in Jeremiah 29 to settle into their place of exile. But we balance that with Psalm 137 verses 5 and 6 in which the exiled psalmist calls down, curses on himself if he ever forgets Jerusalem, if he ever forgets his true home. As Christians, we fight cultural accommodation. Peter calls us in 1 Peter 2.11, sojourners and exiles. Other translations say aliens and strangers. I think the major challenge I have as a shepherd of Christ's church is to continually call you to not take cues from the world about your marriages, about how you raise your children, how you spend your money, how you use your time, the world has nothing to say to you. The world has nothing to offer. We don't take our cues from the world. And the challenge is always to say, before you take any major action in your family, ask the question, why am I doing this? And where do I find this in the Bible? What is the culture doing to, to pour itself into my life? I think that almost more than any other area of life, parenting is where we are so Inebriated with our culture. We don't even know how much we're being affected in the ways we parent. And what happens when cultural accommodation happens? Your witness and your testimony is drowned out by your own willingness to act like the world. You don't have a witness anymore. There's a second seed of disobedience, not only cultural accommodation, but obedience hesitation. Obedience hesitation. I've already highlighted the tremendous wealth that these returnees arrive in Judah possessing. But as we'll see as we progress through Ezra, the completion of the temple stalled for years. Over 15 years later, in 520 BC, the prophet Haggai declared that God was judging the returnees for their hesitation to obey. And how did God judge them? He judged them with poverty. Haggai 1, 5 and 6, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag full of holes. Why had the building of the temple stalled Because the returnees decided to put themselves first instead of the kingdom of God first. One of the main reasons was that they got distracted by building their own houses. And they all made promises. Oh, after we build our own houses in our homeland, uh, we'll come back and build the temple. Fifteen years later, it never happened. Can you imagine? We've been in our our fundraising uh, event called Joyful Generosity for some two and a half years now. Can you imagine if it's 15 years later? Well, Joyful Generosity is still going. There's no excitement to that. That's just disobedience at that point. What's God's way? He always provides for His own if they will seek Him in His kingdom first. Jesus said it very simply, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, your material needs, will be added to you. Matthew 6.33 Cultural accommodation, obedience, hesitation, there is a third seed of disobedience. Selfish motivation. Selfish motivation. Look with me at the very end of chapter 2 in verse 68. This verse describes the initial giving of the wealthy Jews returning to Jerusalem, the exuberance of their giving they were very generous, but look at the first word of verse 68. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that was in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God. This is at the very beginning. Others arrived with their wealth. Some of them arrived, and they forgot the reason they had it in the first place. This is stunning. They wanted to enjoy the fruit of God's kindness and not contribute a penny to the effort to worship God. I've been a pastor for a long enough time to notice that there is very little correlation with how much money somebody makes and how much money somebody gives. Very little correlation. But they showed selfish motivation in another way as well. Chapter 2, verse seventy. Very last verse, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. And this seems innocuous enough at the outset. And yes, God was returning their land and their towns to them. But does something strike you as odd? The whole point of this return is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And while all of them were in favor of rebuilding the temple, almost none of them actually settled in Jerusalem for a while to get it done. In fact, almost a hundred years later, a century later, Nehemiah would have to deal with this problem. Nehemiah 7 verse 4, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And get this, and no houses had been rebuilt. Not in Jerusalem. This is almost after a century. Nehemiah 11 records that Nehemiah would have to fix this problem by having the people cast lots so that one out of ten of them moved to Jerusalem. The people fell into the trap of being theoretically in favor of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem but not actually doing anything about it. Not actually being part of it. This happens in the church today. It It is the... bane of the existence of shepherds that have churches that don't want to obey and it's, it's difficult because it's one thing to say hey I'm all in favor of being salt and light for the sake of the gospel and of the kingdom but it's quite another to put your money and even where you live aside for the sake of that which is greater than you this is the American evangelical dream of yes I'm for the gospel as long as it doesn't interfere with my personal dreams The pursuit of that which you believe will make you happy never does. It never does. It's hollow. And only a life built around worship can be satisfying. And listen, God is sovereign and he's all-knowing. He'll know where your heart is. If your heart is for yourself first and for the gospel second, then he'll begin to withdraw his resources over time. And certainly withdraw your joy. Because you can't be joyful when your priorities are mixed up. And so the seeds of disobedience that undermine faithfulness points us once again in Ezra and Nehemiah that we need a new covenant. The life-altering encounter with the grace of God in Christ who gives the Holy Spirit to change us and make us new creations in Christ. Now I mentioned last time that I'm going to follow a pretty set pattern of application. And I don't usually do this, but I think it'll be Interesting for us. And I'm going to give you three categories of application. We'll do the same one, every message, the same three. The first category, growing in Christ's likeness. How do we grow in Christ's likeness through this? God had roused the Israelites to obey. But do you know this? They're still personally responsible to obey. They're not passive. They're to be active. And this is exactly what Paul tells us in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12 He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He's not talking about working to gain your salvation. He's talking about working to be obedient in your salvation. One of the most important indicators of an effective Christian life is the, the posture of your priorities. That the things of God are more important than anything else. That all of your life is filtered through the Word of God. How is this being obedient to Him? That we live lives devoted to the worship of God. And it's not that complex, really. It's men who are providing for their families, who are loving their wives, who are disciplining their children. Women who are serving their husbands, raising their children, providing a loving home. Children who are raised to hear the Gospel, and when they obey the Gospel... Then they live as unto the Lord, even as children. What happened with the Israelites? They were initially excited. They were initially motivated. But their enthusiasm waned. And they dropped off slowly. And what does that tell us? It tells us that you need to seek the Lord. Or if I could put it this way, you craft your life around the seeking of God. Because we tend to wane. We tend to fall off. We tend to... Uh, not lose our salvation, obviously, but lose the excitement of our salvation and just kind of coast. I mentioned it earlier, but you know what the greatest verse in the Bible on Christian financial management is? It's Matthew six thirty three: Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a simple two-line budget. Line number one, all the things I need to do to please God for his kingdom's sake. Line number two, all the stuff he gives me. That's it. There's your budget. I have a serious question for all of us. Most of you spend time worrying and thinking hard about things like retirement planning, personal health, concern for money and for bills. My question is do you have the same, or maybe even better, a higher level of concern for Christ likeness? And how much time do you devote to your spiritual health, to spiritual self confrontation, to setting goals for yourself spiritually? I think this is a great phrase, to craft your life around seeking God. How is your life crafted? The second category we could consider as far as application, and that's the road to the cross. We always want to find a pathway to the cross because all Scripture has a pathway to the cross. Let me provide several. The first pathway to the cross, did you notice that God provided leaders for the people? That wasn't their idea, that was His idea. And He lists them, specific men, that He was faithful to give godly men to lead the way. God always provides leaders when He wants His will done. Ephesians 4.8 tells us that when He, that is Christ, descended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. What are these gifts? A few verses later, verses 11 and 12, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God always provides leaders. You know what? One of the best ways you can pray for the gospel, pray for the church of Jesus Christ, pray for God to bring men, shepherds, leaders. So The second pathway to the cross. Our hearts went out to those in chapter 2, verse 59, who couldn't prove that they belonged to Israel. And yet they were taken along. Grace was offered to them. We have those, don't we? Or if I could put it this way, you are those. You are those. 1 Corinthians one twenty six and 27 Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And we've talked about this before, but if you walk into... A a corporate meeting or a corporate boardroom of a high-level company with sharp, astute young people working for them. You walk in and they're well-dressed and they're snazzy and they're sharp. They've all got their iPads out and they're very quick and they're all good-looking and they're all just... You just walk in and go, wow, look at them. Then you go to the local church and go, whoa, what happened here? Why is that? Because God doesn't choose people according to their externals, according to their abilities. He chooses the lowest of the low, and He turns them into the kings and queens that will rule in the millennial reign of Christ. Speaking of God's choice, there's a third pathway to the cross. I've been kind of saving this. This is so exciting. This whole episode has the doctrine of election all over it. Whose idea was it to go home? It was God's idea. Ezra 1.5, everyone whose spirit God had stirred and then you get 67 verses to show that God chose precisely specific people, even the precise number of people. Here's a little interesting fact. If you add up the people in chapter 2, verse 3 through verse 63, it totals 29,818, not 42,360. What does that tell us? It tells us that God gave us enough names to demonstrate that He is making a sovereign choice and yet He leaves names out because this demonstrates that the choice of people is His business and His business alone. And for all of them, only one efficient cause is given for them to go home, the stirring of God. There's no verse in here that says God met them halfway. They already sort of came halfway to desire and God met them halfway. This is just like Jesus said to Nicodemus that the Spirit of God moves as He wills and as the Spirit moves, people are born again. It's something that they don't seek. It just happens to them. It just happens. Well, there's a third category of application. We'll call this one the road to Christ's coming kingdom. The road to Christ's coming kingdom. I wanted to highlight Ezekiel 40-48. through It's very interesting to me. Because Ezekiel 40 through 48 gives tremendous detail about the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. And it's focused primarily on, take a wild guess, the building of the temple. Same thing. But Ezekiel 40 through 48 highlights various types of people. Chapter 40 highlights lay people who worship God in the temple. Chapter 44 highlights chambers for the priests. Chapter 44 speaks of Levites who serve in the temple who aren't priests. Chapter 45 speaks of the leaders of Israel whether you have all the same categories of people in Ezra 2. We would also note that God uses a Gentile king, Cyrus, to return God's people to their home. Did you know He's going to do that again? When Christ returns and calls His people home, Gentile rulers will gladly help. Did you know that? Isaiah forty nine twenty two Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up My hand to the nations and raise My signal to the people's, And they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. In other words, Israel will become the premier the capital nation on earth, and kings and queens who are Gentiles will bow to the ground in homage to God's people. Well, as we progress through Ezra and Nehemiah, the difficulties will increase. It doesn't get any better, really. But so will the hope that one day God will reign on this earth and His precious people will be restored, this time forever as worshipers of the true king. Because out of all the groups mentioned, there's one missing, and that is a king. But he will come, the true Messiah, Jesus, the king of all the kings. Let's pray together. Our God, you are the one who produces obedience. And how grateful we are for that moment in time when your spirit stirred in us Shining in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And because of this grace, you've told us in Ephesians 2 that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We thank you, our God, that you are a completely sovereign God. You are in total control over all things including our eternal destinies. And so it's it's our prayer that we may live in light of the soon coming kingdom of Christ under the safe hand of your sovereign will. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.